Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we do ask you to work wonderful things in our midst. Um, We know that a life of following Jesus is far more than a surrender of our thoughts or of our bodies or of our patterns, but it's a surrender of our heart. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, what grips us today, first and foremost, is the mercy of God, uh, which does fantastic things in our hearts, uh, shapes our lives, and uh, when seen by the watching world, uh, shows others the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we ask that our church is distinct in this regard, and we ask that you work in ordinary ways through the power of your Holy Spirit uh, in our midst today. We praise in your name. Amen. So I had to purchase something the other day that required age verification. And instead of asking me for the ID, the lady at the counter just said, quick, what's your birthday? And as I confusedly rattled off my birthday, she told me that the simplicity of that question is actually what revealed most frequently to her those who are using a false ID. Because these kids who have baby faces like me, uh, they go and they give the ID over and that's just their ritual. They know they hand the ID over and the ID takes it from there. And she knows that to just be asked to respond in something more than a rote ritual shakes them to their core. They don't know how to respond. They're caught off guard and it's in their lack of response that it shows who they really are and what they really think. If you think about it, how you respond to things is really of utmost importance. How you respond to the question, will you marry me? Do you know how fast you were going? Or even, where do we go from here? Our responses communicate a reality about who we are, about what we know, and what it is we're seeking to achieve in the moment. Over the past few weeks, we've taken a seven-week break from our series through the Gospel of Luke, which we'll pick up again next week. And we've been showing how the activities we do as a church are a mere extension of the responses God calls Christians to have daily throughout the rest of the week. As John Bunyan, the Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he called Sunday, the Lord's Day, the market day of the Christian soul. It's when we all come to the food pantry of God's grace and we together fill our pockets and fill our shopping carts and we go back to our houses and we eat grace together for the rest of the week. And we've walked through everything we do in our Sunday services from the first time scripture is read to the last time we send people out. And today is the conclusion of that series. And what I hope you've noticed as we've walked through our uh, our liturgy, what we do as a church, is not only that what we do here at church is rooted in scripture, but also that everything we do here at church is a response to what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Everything we do at church is a response to what God has already done. And that shapes everything we do as Christians. But for the sake of today, when we talk about our responses We're going to talk specifically about four responses we practice together as a church. They normally happen right after the sermon, and we'll talk about why. We're going to talk about those four responses we practice together, and those responses are the Lord's Supper, baptism, corporate confession or repentance, and then reciting of a creed together. 
Two of those are clearly commanded by Jesus in scripture for churches to do, and others are openly practiced in scripture, and we'll talk more about that. But as we begin to talk about our response, what the gospel calls us to participate in, we wanna first talk about what responses are in scripture, and more importantly, where they stem from. Understanding how we respond and why we respond is what saves us from being caught flat-footed with false IDs in places that we thought we had clarity, but we obviously don't. And the biggest difference to an important paradigm we often wrestle with in life is actually understanding the nature and order of our response. Perhaps you've heard the term legalism, and what separates legalism from the true gospel of Jesus Christ is actually an understanding of where our response comes from and the order of our responses. This sermon, if you've been with us for a while, is gonna be notably different. One, we're looking at two verses where typically we walk through a larger passage as part of a book and we're studying it exegetically. But we're gonna start with these two verses and we're gonna bounce around a little bit afterwards to talk about those four practices. But it is so important for us to start with these two verses which were just read for us in Romans chapter 12. And that's because we will see four specific points of response in this sermon. We will see that we respond in Christian baptism to mark us off. We will see we respond in uh, Christian communion to keep us going. We'll see we respond with Christian repentance to renew and refresh. And lastly, we'll see we respond with Christian creeds to remind and reorient. But before we get into anything of how we respond, we need to understand why and the nature of our response, which is why we're going to be in Romans 1 and 2. And there we're going to see in this opening portion of today's sermon, the overriding point. If you leave here with one thing today, it's going to be this point, and that is that Christians respond because God's mercy draws out gospel responses. Christians respond because God's mercy draws out gospel responses. Perhaps you're a sports fan or you're a parent and you've heard the phrase in regards to your kid's practice or your own, you play how you practice. How you practice shapes how you play. And part of what we do on Sundays together is to practice responding to the gospel in such a way where it becomes more and more natural for us to respond Christianly throughout the rest of the week. And with that said, let's look at our first two verses today in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or depending upon what translation you have, it might say reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we see our primary point today and that is that Christians respond because God's mercy draws out gospel responses. And if you just look at those two short verses, you see something incredibly profound. It is nothing short of a call to respond, right? But the response that Paul is talking about is life-changing. 
Did you notice the comprehensive nature of the words and the metaphors that Paul is using? He wants first you to present your body, that is your flesh, your physical person is being presented. But your physical person is also an extension of what he then goes on to call your spiritual or your reasonable worship. But that worship and that service is also connected to God's goal to renew your mind. Paul is after your whole life. He is after what you do, who you are, what you think, and how you live. And he pulls out this theme of Old Testament sacrifices when he says that you ought to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. There's nothing more comprehensive or terminal of offering a sacrifice. Some of you got up, I saw some kids get up during the offering time and they offered their money in the boxes and then they came back to their seat. That was not a terminal offering. They were able to give and then come back. But when those Old Testament sheeps offered their sacrifice, it was terminal. It cost them the whole of their life. So too, a Christian sacrifice is to give not a portion of who you are, but all of who you are. But here's the beauty of the gospel. It is a living sacrifice. We respond to the gospel, not with deadness, but with new life, for Jesus gives us life. We respond as living sacrifices. More than that, these practices we put on, Paul is drawing a contrast with. Many of you have perhaps been part of uh, you know, a family or a church where you could say, well, they followed Jesus, but it was, it was rote, it was ritualistic, it was legalistic, it was empty, it was dead. But as you look at all the words Paul is saying, that ritualistic, dead, empty is not a Christian response. But instead, it is reasonable, it is living, it is spiritual, it is mindful, it is worship-filled, and more than that, it is attached to your emotions, a longing for what is good and what is perfect. This new life consumes all of who we are. Christians often use the phrase conversion, being converted to Christ. And when we think of Christian conversion, I think we typically think of a convertible. Yeah, now we have the privilege of dropping that top, the sun is out, we get a cruise through uh, Highway 12 looking at all the beauty. But then it's like there are times where the clouds grow, grow a little dark and the temperature dips a little, and we like that ability to put that top back up. <laughs> to go back to how it was, maybe a little more comfortable, maybe a little safer. But Christian conversion is not like a Mustang. Christian conversion is like a caterpillar that is turned into a butterfly. There is no going back. You're not just a repurposed version of what you were. You are an entirely new creation. And you get a glimpse of this just in these short two verses. Look back at your text and see if you could see this. Your life is to be fundamentally different. So much so, we see that in verse one, your lives are now given to God as a sacrifice. Your lives are now set apart for God as holy. Your lives are not lived for the approval of self or for the approval of culture, but lived for the approval of God. And your greatest joy in life is not becoming your own autonomous person, but of discerning what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. We are given to God for God, with the approval of God, to live in the will of God. Now, depending upon who you are and what your background is with Jesus when you come in here, we have all sorts of responses to such a comprehensive statement as that. Perhaps that seems unattainable. 
and you're like, I've been trying to follow Jesus for a long time, and here you are just saying this has to be done more visibly, with more effort, in more clear ways. I can't attain that. That is too hard. That is too much. Or perhaps you look at it as joyless, and you're like, that's not exactly how I would want to spend my weekends or my free time, but it's probably better than eternal judgment and hell, so I guess I'll do it and I'll try to find joy and life in the meantime. But this is why we must sort out Paul's order of this passage, to help us sort between the burden of legalism in responses and the joy of natural gospel response. You see, most people think that legalism has to do with the action itself or with the style or if you have social media like I do, you realize that legalism becomes anything you don't like. <laughs> as soon as there's something about following Jesus you don't like, that thing becomes legalistic. And anyone who does that is now legalistic as well. But the difference between the gospel and legalism is actually where we place the burden of response. Legalism says, I do this, and then God responds. I say the right things, I do the right steps, I pray the right prayers, I participate in the right rituals, and then God rewards my legal law-keeping with mercy, with health, with getting the attention of that girl I've been trying to flatter, whatever it is, we provide the input, and then God, like this massive computer genie, computes the output. We do, and God responds. But this gets the order of our offering wrong, doesn't it? That's not at all what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter one, or chapter 12, or chapter one for that matter. Look at Romans 12, verse one, the first part of it. He says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do we move forward? What is it that we respond to? We respond to the mercies of God. Well, an important question we might ask are, what are these mercies? What's well, everything that preceded Romans chapter 12? In the first 11 chapters of this letter to a church, just like you guys, Paul magisterially walks through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this begins where each and every one of us begin, whether you were born into a Christian family or you were born into a Muslim family or you were just born in the bitterate. We all start... <laughs> People say you make fun of that. I don't have anything against the bitter. It's just funny because you guys get so touchy about it, okay? Um, but we all start in Romans chapter one, disillusioned, disobedient, dissatisfied, and destined for God's judgment because we have neglected to worship the beauty of the God who is. And we have ignored his righteous law. That's where all of us start. In pain because our sin has blinded us. We have exchanged, Paul says, the truth about God for a lie, and we have worshiped creation instead of the creator. But that's not the end of the story for those who have eyes to see the gospel. For God sent Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to be born fully God and fully man so that he might not experience this wonderful tourism of the world, but that he might worship God rightly and obey God perfectly where we didn't. That he might have exclusive clear vision of what God desired when he created humanity, but then not only would he live it perfectly, but he would die substitutionally. 
meaning that our sins demanded death, but Jesus took that death for you on the cross. Jesus, the obedient one, died for us, the disobedient ones. And we get one then back to God, not merely as servants or as slaves or as living sacrifices, but we get one back to God as sons and daughters of God whom we, to whom we cry, Abba, Father. But how is it that you earn that salvation? You can't. It's not by your works, Paul says, but by faith. God does not love us because of our merit before him. He loves us because of his mercy. Mercy that Jesus was the meritorious one. He was the one who met God's perfect law, his faithful obedience. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are poured out on that cross, given to the innocent savior, and we are forgiven. But wait, there's more. Romans 8 tells us that he repairs our paranoid and disillusioned selves. Aren't we always paranoid and disillusioned? Doesn't it take like, you could get 15 compliments on your hair when you walk out of here. And then my daughter has gotten in this way of saying to my wife right now, she's like, your hair looks better longer or it looks better curly when her hair is short and straight. And we encounter one of those piercing commands and it ruins the rest of our day and we have no idea where we actually stand. We don't know what our identity is. We don't have any clear grasp on what brings us confidence. But here God gives us through redemption, not only Christ the son who saves us, but he gives us God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity to indwell us so that he might help us live and know our new identity in Jesus Christ. And as he dwells in us in the difficulty of putting off sin and the pain of life in a fallen world, he reminds us daily of Jesus' mercy in our place. Romans 8 concludes that there is now nothing in all of creation which can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The pain of paranoia has gone away in the wonderful election of God's love in Jesus Christ. And who can get in on this? Well, Romans 9, 10, 11 go show, well, it's certainly not the religious elites and it's certainly not the burnt out and lost Gentiles simply because they're lost and they understand their miserableness. <laughs> but it's anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be saved. That is that the message of the gospel is universal to all who exclusively respond to Jesus Christ. And in light of these multitudes of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, from every racial conflict, from every geopolitical war, which causes us to ask difficult questions, from all of that, God is bringing forth faithful people to be saved and to worship him. Why? For from him and to him and through, or from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It is after Paul has heralded the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its sweet benefits to the believer that now he turns and says, those mercies do something. Those mercies call you to respond. And there's this beautiful tension here and that is, first, we see the complete undercutting of legalism. 
where legalism says, do this and God will respond. The gospel says, Jesus has done it and now I get to respond. Legalism makes your own actions the king of the world, but the gospel makes Jesus the rightful king over our lives, the one who did what we could never do to give us what we could never earn for a joy we could never imagine. And there's this beautiful tension in this passage, and that is that Paul does give commands. We'll look at those commands, those imperatives in the Greek in verse two. But he doesn't begin with commands, does he? Look back at Romans 12.1, what does he begin with? an appeal. Yes, Paul knows Christians must look different. Why? Because Jesus has made them different. They are fundamentally different. They are, for anyone who is in Christ Jesus, is a new creation. And yet, Paul doesn't begin the command for Christian response with an imperative. Even though it's weighty and demands that. He begins with an appeal. He wants us to see primarily not the obligation of giving our lives to King Jesus, but the joy of it, the privilege of it. He wants you to see the beauty of a father as good as this, who sent a son as wonderful as Jesus and gave us a comforter as sweet as the Holy Spirit. And we look at that like we look at the dessert line at the buffet and say, all I want is more of that. I want to be burdened by the task of eating from the sweetness of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see these imperatives. The response to God's mercy is varied in its responses. For all of us experience God's mercy in new ways. But Paul tells us what this response should look like. And this is where we see this in the imperatives of verse two. Look, he says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. While all of us will respond to God's mercies in unique ways, Paul tells us what that response should look like. And what should it look like? That we look less like the world and more like what God is transforming us to be in the gospel by his grace. And what's really important for all of us to see is that the option of response is no option at all. This text assumes that you are responding to something. You are either responding to the external pattern, the conformity, the mold of the world, or you are responding to the inward transformation of grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. One leads to greater joy, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The other leads all the way back to all the disillusioned, dissatisfied, destined for judgment pain of Romans chapter 1. And the response of this transformation is so holistic that it really does change everything. At Sovereign Hope, we're about gospel change for all of life. And this transformation changes what you eat. It changes who you date. It changes your view of sexuality. It changes what you read. It changes how you raise your kids. It changes how you share the gospel. It changes how you enjoy a good cup of coffee. It changes everything. But today we want to see having the order right of seeing God's mercy in our response. We want to talk about four specific responses that we practice together, knowing that when we practice this, we are no longer just handing an ID and expecting that to do something, but we are heartily involved by the transformative mercies of God to look more like Jesus and less like the world. And however familiar you are with baptism, Lord's Supper, 
corporate confession, the Apostles' Creed. I want all of us today to put aside what we know or what we think we know and to think about it at a heart level. Because what's interesting to note, and we'll see this as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus' critique of the legalistic and hypocritical and ritualistic Pharisees almost never attacks what it is they're doing. Instead, he criticizes the heart in which they're doing things. He's less concerned about the, the system and the structure, and he's far more concerned about the individual's heart in the midst of it. Which means when Jesus sees Pharisees acting legalistically in giving or in worship or in praying, he never says, well, don't give, don't worship, and don't pray. He just says, don't do it like that. Do it the right way. Do it by the mercies of God, understanding what I'm about to do as Christ the King. And so as we assess our responses as a church, we want to assess things in light of and in response to God's mercy, or we don't do it well at all. And that could include by choosing to just do nothing at all. That could be wonderfully legalistic. Or we can be legalistic in what we do as well, by detaching it from the gospel. But we want to look at our four responses, our own spiritual worship, so that we might enjoy God's mercy together and practice gospel responses here so that it might shape us for the rest of the week. So that's the really long intro into what will hopefully not be a really, really long sermon. And so we're going to start by looking at these responses in light of knowing the order, right? Get the order right or nothing is right. Responding to God's mercy or live in legalism and find discontentment everywhere, but see God's mercy and see what God is calling us to in the gospel. And the first thing we practice here at church is we respond with baptism to mark us out, us being the church. Baptism marks the church off. And we have the privilege of having not one, not two, but three baptisms here today. And so we, this is of keen importance for us today to pay attention to what we are witnessing and participating in. And in the Great Commission, Jesus commanded and he empowered his disciples to go forth and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' final command. And not many days later, we see how seriously the apostles took this when Pentecost happened. And Peter delivers this wonderful presentation of the gospel and we read of this scene in Acts chapter two, verses 36 through 41. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they, that's the crowds who he just preached to, the multitudes of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added about that day about 3,000 souls. And so here, what do we see about baptism? We see that baptism is a response a response to the preached message of the gospel, a response that follows repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We also see that baptism is part of God's effect to mark off his church from a crooked generation. It draws a hard line around those who have repented for those who do submit their lives to the king and those who don't. 
Baptized people are those who believe in Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins, and who by merit of those two things stand apart from the world. Paul gives us a similar understanding of this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so at Sovereign Hope, we baptize believers who have repented and believed in, script, believed in the name of Jesus Christ We baptize them in immersion by water to represent what Paul here is talking about, that we have been buried with Christ and that we've been raised in Christ. And more than simply being a public profession of faith, which is kind of how we typically think of baptism, it's kind of like that Costco card we get, um, it's actually this commitment. Baptism is this commitment to live a Romans 12 life. How do we see that? Because Paul just says, it pledges by the power of new life in Jesus Christ that we too will walk in newness of life. Baptism is a pledge to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I often use my wedding ring as an example when we talk about baptism. My wedding ring doesn't make me married any more than baptism makes you Christian. Jesus and faith in Jesus makes you Christian. But my wedding ring serves as a constant reminder to me and to others of to whom I belong. I belong to Sarah. And baptism makes our clothes wet metaphorically for the rest of our life so that we might always know to whom we belong. That our identity is tied not to who we are, but to who Jesus is. That we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ and it's in his name we live. It's in his name we walk and it's his glory we pursue. Just as in the Old Testament, circumcision set apart God's physical people, Israel, In the New Testament, it's baptism that sets apart God's spiritual people of the church. We see this in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12, where Paul says this. In him, that's in Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, what is the circumcision of Christ? Well, here he's gonna explain. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So if you're someone in here today who is wondering what a first response to the gospel looks like, here we see it. What do you do in light of the gospel that's proclaimed? What do you do in light of what Jesus has done to save sinners and restore us to God? You first respond is to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins, and to be baptized to identify in obedience with what Jesus has done to save you. And if that's you today, then I encourage you to talk to me, talk to Johnny, talk to one of the elders here because we wanna help you think through that. We want you to know with full confidence what Jesus has done to save you. And so we baptize to be marked out by what saves us. But the second clear response Jesus gives to the church, which we often do, is the Lord's Supper. And this is something that we often call communion as well, depending upon how you grew up or who's on stage that day, we call it both. But this is where we see our second response, and that is communion to keep us going. 
where baptism is a one-time event in the life of a Christian, the Lord's Supper is a feast we get to participate in continually. This, too, was commanded by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Well, actually, in all the Gospels, and we see this uh, Luke's account in Luke 22, verses 19 through 20, where Jesus uh, picks up with narrative and says, And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, or this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so the Lord's Supper, where we take grape juice and a cracker and we eat it together, is the new covenant meal for God's people. Now, what we don't eat is we don't eat the body and blood of Jesus. We're not cannibals. It doesn't magically transform in our mouths to become something that it's not. There's nothing special about the elements, but there's something incredibly special about the practice. And as that the Lord's Supper are for those who believe in God and have repented. And that's why we generally ask kids and all who partake of the Lord's Supper that you have done so, that you've been baptized, that you've been marked out as having faith in Jesus Christ Because if baptism is the first response to faith, the Lord's Supper is the continued response of faith. Look at how Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 15 and 16. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ. So that word is important. Paul's not merely saying this symbolizes. He's saying this is for those who participate in the blood of Christ. We already saw in Romans 12 that we don't participate in the redemption of Jesus apart from anything other than God's mercy. And so if we want to participate in this covenant meal, we do so by faith in Jesus Christ. This meal is something that continues to mark off those who are feasting on God's provision for us in Jesus Christ. And as the new covenant meal, we are reminding ourselves again of two things. First, of the means of that covenant. How can you know you are saved? By Christ and Christ alone. By his body and his blood poured out for you. But secondly, we see the joy of the covenant. That is, for what have you been saved? You have been saved for communion, for fellowship with God the Father through the Son on account or and filled with the Holy Spirit. To take that communion together is to remind ourselves of what Christ has won us to. He has won us to wonderful fellowship with God himself. But this communion is not limited to the individual and to God. It involves corporate fellowship as well. Paul makes it really clear that when we take the Lord's Supper, it's not an individual meal. It's a corporate meal. Just as Jesus took it with his disciples, 1 Corinthians makes it clear that this meal was meant to be taken with the whole gathered church. One of the things that we always say, the easiest step to studying your Bible is to pay attention to what's repeated. And so let's pay attention to what's repeated in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul begins to correct some of the practices inside of the Corinthian church. He says this in verse 11, 17 through 20. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you and I believe it in part 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So what's the repeated word that Paul and Ringo got right? Come together right now. This meal was a meal for when the church gathered, when they came together. And what was enraging Paul, so much so they said, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper, is that it became this meal for those who were elite or exclusive inside the church to take, while others weren't allowed to take it. In other words, it took and perverted the wonderfully equalizing effect of the gospel for all who believed and made it conditional upon who you were and how much you made and what your skin color was and what gender you were. But this meal is meant to unite the whole believing church together with God through Jesus Christ. We live in a world that longs for true diversity. And every time we come to the table of the Lord, we are reminded of the diversity that only the gospel can provide. That all who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ are united to each other and united to God himself. As we partake of this meal, we're practicing a reminder of God's daily provision. Just as food sustains the flesh, and many of you are already thinking of those wonderful gluten balls that will be behind that wall afterwards. Just as food sustains our flesh, Jesus sustains the church. It reminds us of our daily bread, of what we need to be mindful of every day. It speaks into our moment but it also speaks to our future, to that day where one day God will call the whole of his church, not just this church and the other Missoula churches, but the whole global church, saints past, saints present. And we will come together for the wedding supper of the lamb where we will be filled finally and fully by the eternal salvation of Jesus where every sin has been removed, every pain has been soothed and death itself has gone to die. It speaks into our moment and it speaks into our future and it reminds us of all we share together through the blood of Jesus Christ. And these two responses that we just looked at are distinct from what follows. We actually do, we intentionally do these responses after the sermon because we want to help with that order. We want to realize that all of our responses come after we have boldly and at much length declared the gospel. And then we respond. It's intentional that we do it there. But these two we just looked at are explicitly and specifically commanded by Jesus for his church. Meaning that if you want to be a biblical church, these are non-negotiables. You must baptize as the Lord converts and you must practice at some frequency the Lord's Supper. You can't be an obedient church without these things. It's the joyful privilege, the joyful obligation, the joyful command of the Lord that you participate in these. But the next two aren't clearly commanded by Jesus Christ. And yet we see them patterned all over the New Testament and the Old Testament, which means that we hold them a little more humbly than we do the first. We will die on the hill of the Lord's Supper and baptism. But these two are ones that the elders have seen clearly modeled in scripture, that the historic church has long done and that it actually helps us practice Christian responses for the rest of the week. And these final two responses we practice after the gospel are corporate repentance and reciting of a creed. And if there's anything that gives former Catholics PTSD, 
It's these two things. They're already getting in here a little antsy, a little hot and sprinting for the door. But this is why we need to understand the right role of response in God's mercy. If we forget the gospel, everything about the Christian life becomes odd, not just specific things. But when we see the beauty of God's mercy, these become natural, not only for our times together, but it's training us how to respond throughout the week. And the first thing we're gonna talk about is our response of Christian repentance to refresh and renew. Every few weeks when we conclude our sermon, we read a prayer of confession together as a body. And this is something the Bible makes really clear as part of the Christian life. It's what, as we pick up Luke here next week, it's what John the Baptist was doing when he was calling others to be baptized. They were coming and they were confessing their sins to John the Baptist. It's what James recommends in James 5 verse 16 where he says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's what the early church was doing in the book of Acts, in Ephesus in particular, in Acts 19 verses 17 through 18. And it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. So here's this presentation of the gospel. And also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So we see it in the New Testament church. We see it all the time in the Old Testament. There are numerous times in all of the Old Testament books where the church is coming together and they are confessing where they have failed the Lord. It's something that has been consistent in church history as well. And we practice this confession together because confession is the way of life for the Christian. When we together confess our sins, we're doing two things. First, we are uncoupling our own guilt. And secondly, we are unleashing the grace of Jesus Christ. During the week, I don't know if you're a sinner like me, but there can sometimes be times where it feels like I am the only broken person who wrestles with this sin. (laughs) That everyone else has hope, but I can't do it. Jesus isn't sufficient. He won't give me what I need, and I'm a miserable wreck. But what confession does is it says, no, we're all miserable wrecks. (laughs) We all have that day this week. We're all wrestling to be who Jesus has saved us to be. It comes and reminds us that we are simultaneously sinner and saint along with every other person who confesses faith in Jesus Christ. And despite that fact of wrestling with our ongoing sin, that Jesus's grace is sufficient for you. That your salvation is not contingent upon your work, but Jesus's work. And he is laboring in you to present you mature in him, even as we wrestle to put off sin and to put on Christ. And so we gather together, we're not standing up and confessing all of our individual sins. We confess corporately what is probably shared, that we all disobeyed, that we've believed lies, that we didn't live as we ought, and that Jesus is sufficient for us. And the beauty of this prayer is that it can be for anyone. It could be for King David, the man who God loved, the man after God's own heart, but who in Psalm 32 began to vocalize his sins to God and found great relief. It is the ongoing act of even the most signature Christian. But Christian confession is also for the person who's responding for the very first time to the gospel. We don't practice altar calls here, but we do practice frequent calls to repent. 
And I can tell you on good authority, namely what is extremely clear in scripture, that the best way to be saved is not to come to a certain place, but to confess your sins to a certain person. That is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this is what makes this confession so much different than if you've experienced this in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church believes that you need to be forgiven every week by a priest because the priest actually has the ability to do that. But Christian confession doesn't confess to me or whoever is preaching or leading the service. It confesses to Jesus, who is our high priest forever, who lives to make intercession for you. And we don't confess every week because Jesus' sacrifice needs to be re-upped like your phone contract. We confess every week because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient once for all. That the same truth that saved you last week is the same truth that saved you this week. The same power of grace that set you apart last week is the same power of grace that sets you apart this week. And that's why at the end of our confession, we read an assurance of pardon. Where it's not a pastor or a priest who says, you're forgiven, go. It's God's word that speaks to us in passages like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or the fact that though our sins were, as, as were crimson, he has washed us whiter than snow. We get to rejoice that God answers the prayer of broken sinners and that Jesus will be sufficient for you this week as well. And then when it feels you can do nothing else under the weight of your sin, what can you do? You can speak to your savior about it. It helps us play how we practice. And this is an important practice because it actually reminds others that following Jesus is difficult. That there are real sins and real setbacks, but Jesus is faithful in the midst of it. It's also the greatest apologetic for your coworker, or your classmate who won't come to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Because here's what corporate prayer says. You're right. <laughs> it says publicly and openly that we are not who we have been saved to be. And yet by God's grace, we are being made more like Jesus every day. And we apologize where we fail and we rejoice that Christ never did. The last response we practice together is another confession, but instead of being a confession of our own sin, it's a confession in what we believe. This is the final practice that we confess the Apostles' Creed to remind and refresh and that's what creed, creed being from the word credo, which simply means to believe is. It's a confession of what we believe. And for many of us, this might be the most foreign thing we do together when we stand up and we begin by saying we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And yet I was thinking this week and noticing that there's probably nothing more common to our culture than reciting creeds. How many of you, when spelling the name of our church, say the faithful creed, I before E, except after C, are resounding like A as a neighbor in way. How many of you, when you're working on your car, reach way back into the annals of human history and you say, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey? Or perhaps you've been from a church, in a church service, and you've heard no creed but the Bible, which is itself a creed. <laughs> or maybe you've driven to the grocery store in your neighborhood. And you've seen signs that say in this house, we believe that black lives matter. Women rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. 
Love is love and kindness is everything. Our world runs on creeds. Our world desires to coax out what it is you believe in, but more importantly, it tries to tell you what to believe in. And we do this because we know a clear understanding of what we believe to be true is often the most helpful and practical tool we have for those who are confused, for those who are lost, or for those who are just starting. And while all of these examples are secular creeds, God gives us his holy word, which teaches us. And we need creeds on top of that because every heretic claims to be biblical. The Bible is true only in that we rightly interpret God's word and praise God that through the power of his Holy Spirit and the doctrine of illumination, we can know what God has for us. Believers throughout the years have practiced this. In fact, uh, the faithful Jew uh, in Israel would recite the Shema, a summary from Deuteronomy 6 in all of their worship services. They would begin and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the New Testament, Paul references, it's in the Bible, but he's referencing something we don't have any other record of in the Bible that was something common that the church would recite. We see this in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, where he says this. He says, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so here Paul is finding this creed that the church had been saying, and he's saying, remember what you've learned, that God is faithful to you. There are multiple times in Paul's letters where he recites a clear statement of doctrine and finishes up with, the statement is trustworthy. He's assuming that the church is putting itself to the task of knowing doctrine in a right way. He's packaging truths so that you can remind yourself of them on a day-to-day basis. Because our world loves to confess its own doctrine, Christians are often swayed, as Paul says, by every wave of false doctrine that comes their way. And so to protect that, Paul had practiced it here in uh, the church in Ephesus, And the church has practiced it throughout the centuries of producing what are sometimes called creeds or confessions to help with that. And actually, we sang this this Christmas season. How many of you came and sang, O come all ye faithful with us? And we sang the words, true God of true God, light from light eternal. That is a direct quote from the Nicene Creed, which was a document that was produced by the church to protect against what was called Arianism, a heresy that Jesus was just the first of all God's created beings. That yeah, he's, he's not created like you, but he's not God himself. And what the church says like, no, this is true God of true God, light from light eternal of the same substance and essence as the father. It was teaching them, here's the boundary and there's danger beyond it. When my children learn Darwinian evolution in school, the Apostles' Creed helps them. That we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That we are not a wonderful accident. We are divinely made by our creator, God. We recite together the Apostles' Creed, which is the uh, oldest collection of Christian truths presented. And Baptists can say it, and Presbyterians can say it, and Bitterate Christians can say it, because it includes just the most basic confession of what is to be true in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
when the sorrow and death of a loved one grips your heart, what do we remind ourselves of? We believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. When we wonder if in a painful world of global news that seems catastrophic, if God even cares anymore, if Jesus is king at all, we say the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We build these in as first principles to speak hope to ourselves when the world tries to teach us something else. There's a tragic story that Jesus himself shares of people who would come to him on the day of judgment. And they come to Jesus and they try to hand him the false ID. They say, Lord, do we not do many things in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did mighty works in your name. But Jesus says, what's your birthday? And he says, away from me for I never knew you. You see, creeds in particular remind us of how different our hope should be when we come before the Lord, where when Jesus says, what is your birthday? We don't begin by reciting what we have done, but what Christ has done. A famous creed that the church used, the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question, what is my only hope in life and death? That I belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ, my King. Why do you need to know that? Because someday it will be asked of you. All of us will give a response to the King of Kings. And all of us, when we see Jesus for who he is, will respond in the way we have practiced in life. Either of laboring or boasting in our own righteousness or the righteousness of the world's theology or by giving ourselves body and soul to Jesus Christ our Lord, of confessing our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. There's this beautiful privilege we have of together practicing in response, responses that bring us confidence in that day, responses of faith, responses of confession, responses of worship. There's a beautiful scene in the book of Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5. And in that moment, the resurrected Jesus is presented to God's anxious people as the key to God's redemptive plan. And in that moment, there's a group of elders who have been responding continually before the throne of God, unceasingly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You might say, well, that's pretty ritualistic. They sing that forever. That's a pretty short song. There's not even a catchy bass line. But what they sang, they believed. And the practice of that response of waiting for the Lord who is to come prepared them for that moment where Jesus Christ appeared. The resurrected lamb showed up to finally redeem his people and bring them into the new heaven and the new earth. And there we read their response, their response which they labored to have in Revelation 5 verses 11 and 14. Then I looked 
And I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the ones who had been saying, holy, 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 the ones who had been practicing worship, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands on thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders who were worshiping beforehand fell down and worshiped all the more. We need to worship our king and so we respond daily in every Lord's day, in worship responses motivated by his mercy because we want what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are right responses to your word. And in this room with hundreds of people, hundreds of people who are here, there are hundreds of potential responses But Lord, we pray that they are responses motivated by mercies. Responses that transform us into the image of Christ instead of conforming us to the image of the world. Lord, as we conclude in participating in baptism together, may each of us not miss an opportunity to question our own heart's response to the gospel that we might be ones who when we stand before Jesus, we know what our boast is. For we have been baptized with him and raised with him. For we have been sustained by the sacrifice of Jesus' flesh and his body. We have confessed our sin and we have not hidden our iniquity from him. And we confess that Christ is a sufficient sacrifice to save us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.